You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Coming up next, we have Sloane Crosley. It's the Agony Column. Stay tuned. With me live in the studio is Sloane Crosley. She's a book publicist who lives in New York, and she's the author of the collection of essays, I Was Told There Be Cake. Her work has been published in Playboy, Maxim, Salon, The New York Times, and Vice. Her new collection of essays is titled, How Did You Get This Number? Thank you for joining me, Sloane. Thank you for having me. Sloane, I, I, I love, um, I, these collections have really nice um, themes that kind of emerge through each of them. So, and, and I kind of wanted to talk about how that happened because it seems that, you know, it's so kind of bubbles under. When you were writing these essays uh, in um, I Was Told There'd Be Cake, I love how the title reflects that theme of kind of disappointment. And it's life's little disappointments, isn't it? Uh, it certainly is. I like, I, well, I'll tell you right back, I like the idea of something bubbling under uh, because it certainly wasn't something uh, it sort of uh, digs its roots in uh, a theme as opposed to being something conscious that you enter into. I mean, I think it's hard with humor collections. There's a lot of pressure um, from both the reader and the marketing department, frankly, to produce some sort of cohesive theme that you can sum up in a sentence. You know, David Sedaris has Paris. Chuck Klosterman has music. David Rykoff has being Canadian. I um, I wasn't sure what I had, and uh, dis- general disappointment seemed like uh, kind of a theme, but really kind of the brand of humor it was entering into a situation. Think it's going to go, you think it's going to go one way, and the humor comes from the gap between your perception and how it actually ends up going. Now you're a book publicist, true. So <laughs> I I wonder uh, if you would talk about the gap be- that you must experience when your book itself is subjected to a publicity. There is some sort of disconnect. I mean, I think there's a disconnect for every author who's Mm -hmm. writing something that's personal. Anything that uses, you know, the where I is the most common vowel, Um, you you try to have there be sort of a very, you know, to hit closest to the whole possible of who you really are when you're trying to write about yourself. but it, it does uh, create an extra layer of remove when you're dealing, you're trying to look at things from a media perspective uh, and giving interviews. Although, you know, the truth is, is I didn't write something like Running With Scissors or something where I feel like I have to be excessively careful. I can just sort of talk as I am now. <laughs> well, one of the things I, I think about this book that made me very glad, and both your books, is that um, when I read Nick Hornby's high fidelity. I really liked it, but I also thought that Nick Hornby was a a traitor to his sex and that that book should be withheld from all women because it (laughs) actually gave a fairly accurate vision of the way men thought. And I we can tell you, but now we're going to have to kill you. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and and I, I'm glad that you are actually, I think, equally a traitor to your sex. <laughs> and give Thank us, you. <laughs> and give us uh, an idea of how women really think in both these books. 
Well, I, you know, I am at once flattered by that and the idea that because, you know, seeing the perception of it out there as as a, a, a female voice that's not entirely chicky, that's not entirely, you know, the cosmos and, and you know, sort of disproportionately obsessed with boys and what other people think and really just sort of something that doesn't feel like a woman's writing all the time. I mean, the this isn't to say I address boy subjects, although there is an essay in the new book about seeing uh, a bear get shot and an essay in the old one about video games. So there is certainly, you know, an angle there. But um, that's, you know, a good thing. In other words, if you think that's how women think now, that's good. You shouldn't think that we all are secretly concerned about boys and hair and, and whatnot. But at the same time, it's a lot of pressure to feel that you're somehow speaking for the trees. You know, you're the sort of chicky Lorax kind of. <laughs> uh, you, you started your career um, as an intern and you, you give us a, a, a delightful look at that um, with uh, the Ursula cookie. Talk about how you found your way into the world of uh, literary publicism. Publicism. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Careful, you'll catch it. Um, <laughs> I think, you know, I actually, I wanted, I went to school uh, for um, archaeology and anthropology, which is telling in a little, in uh, some ways, I think I'm still sort of interested in other people's stories, maybe in a more current sense, uh, in a less sort of dead uh, archival sense. But um I uh, interned for all magazines. I interned for, you know, magazines like The New Yorker, and that's what I thought I wanted to do. Um, and then I sort of fell backwards, uh, or bubbled down, I suppose would be the correct terminology here, uh, into uh, being a literary agent's assistant because I had a friend who, post-grad, I couldn't find a job in magazines, uh, which has now have become difficult again. And I had a friend who took a, a publishing course, and she said, it's so great. Editors talk to us, and literary agents talk to us. And I thought, yes, of course, literary agents and I went and googled what that meant and then I found a listing and applied and, and became an assistant to a woman who um, had a very strong personality and uh, that essay is about me trying to manage that. One of the things I like about this is that this is I think a not an uncommon experience to bond closely with your boss at the outset and then find out that there's something of a chasm between that initial bonding experience and the core of your uh, supervisor's personality. Well, I think, you know, it's funny. I think it's the age it is where you really are duped into thinking it's, you, you don't realize how much it imitates a romantic relationship, frankly, at the time and how some of them, you know, because of that, you don't, uh, something you would normally be on the lookout for that you're trained from college and growing up. Like, you know, if, if a if boy is mean to you, if a member of the opposite sex is acting a certain way, you know, better cut your losses and run. Cause the, you know, and, but that's really what it's like. You think, well, this is, this is what's temporary. It'll go back to being good again. Um, and it, it probably won't. And of course it comes to some sort of, when it could have come to a civilized head six months into the job, it comes to an explosive, ridiculous, uh, but luckily in my case, or hopefully in my case, funny, uh, implosion about a year and a half into the job. Well, one of the things I think that's, uh, that this observation that you made, it, it is kind of like a love potion that you take when you start a new job. Explain how that happened for you. 
Well, for me, I think I was so pre. I, I like I said, I, I started out being interested in archaeology, and it just wasn't clicking for me. I mean, it's still something I'm interested in my spare time, but not really a spare time activity to go on a dig, but just sort of you know reading about it. Um, and I think I felt like I had discovered some sort of true calling. You know, I had really discovered I want to be around books. I want to be an advocate for authors. Um, and I want to do it in this way. And I was sort of taught that, you know, you are someone who works with authors and you're sort of representing the agent and protecting them against the big bad publishing house. And uh, the amount of reading you got to do uh, was phenomenal. And sometimes it was horrible because uh, you're really the first line of defense when, you know, someone says, you know, there's a retirement community full of people who want to write novels and then you get them and they're not all great. Um, and so I just really thought that, you know, it was such a small office. I think that's the other thing is you not, you're not, when you don't have the perspective and that's all, you know, um, I thought that this was the way into literature. Now, um, it, one of the things that um, interested me was when you wrote about uh, video games, you wrote about a video game called Oregon Trail, which I'd never heard of until recently. Oh, you have not lived. <laughs> Explain what Oregon <laughs> Trail is, because I think a lot of people might not have heard of oh, this. Oh, I'm so excited for this question. I hope I can do it justice for all the people who have. And <laughs> um, It is of the uh, Joust, Burger Time, Tetris era era, uh, you know, post-Frogger, pre-Super Mario Brothers type vehicle. Um, Oregon Trail really is it was meant to be an educational game. And I think it was started by uh, a couple of college kids in Missouri, which is appropriate because I think that's where the Oregon Trail started and then, you know, moved out west. Um, and it was basically uh, you hit you. It was like a precursor to The Sims, really, where you had a wagon and you loaded it up with people and meat and various provisions. Um, and your job was to, you know, ford the river and, and, and get across mountains and basically get to Oregon alive and prosperous and you know you'd get points for shooting rabbits and and, and buffalo and bison and things of this nature and um, the reason why I loved it is because unlike all the other video games of the day it really uh, had a which way book quality to it where you could name your characters it was very much very much in your power to you know do you shoot a bunch of rabbit you know and you can load down the wagon and sink the wagon. And what I would do, and I don't think I'm alone in this, is name uh, the people uh, with people I didn't like. A mean girl at school, my math teacher. And the game would ask you, it would warn you that you're about to lose it. And it would say, if you shoot one more bison and load it into this into the truck here, um, you are going to kill you know, Mrs givens and I, well, are you sure you want to do this and I would gleefully click yes I am I would like her to contract diphtheria so, and publicism <laughs> <laughs> publicism yes uh, I, I, uh, uh, uh that I think will join the hall of fame along with uh, bride tatorship <laughs> uh, this is one it, it, this essay called uh, you on a stick uh, this is a really interesting essay because this is really, I think, one of the hearts uh, of the glimpse of, of what you provide us with how women really think. And it's very, very interesting. Um, could you talk about the way that you – I think that your overall approach to writing has a kind of a, a revelatory effect and you you seem to be kind of – I think you're a little more raw than most uh, – uh, I, well, I don't know. You know, I guess I can't. I can't say I've read a lot of anybody else who's written at all in the way you write. Oh well, thank you. I mean, I think that uh, you know, for humor essay collections, 
there are so few of us. I mean, this is the trick is to find a find a vocation where uh, there are very few people who are famous for doing it. Um, and because they'll all be good and then you get the automatic comparisons in the reviews, <laughs> even if they're completely unearned. You know, when people people say, oh, in the vein of David Sedaris and Dorothy Parker, because it's two humor essays. <laughs> they're just not running around the streets rampant. Um, but, uh, you know, I hope that there is something a little bit unique about it. But it's funny when you say it's a glimpse into what women think, because I just... What did you think we thought? I mean, <laughs> before this, you know, I'm just wondering what parts people do pick. I mean, I, I think I know what you're saying, but at the same time, I think we all just want to feel comfortable with each other and relieved. And, you know, I think when when you're having difficulty com- communicating with a member of the opposite sex, part of you, um, all you want is for them to see you normal. See so you go home after work, flip through your mail, sit down, TV, see how incredibly sane you are. And that's what we want to see of you too. You know, just the, the normality of uh, the details of your of your life and how they do sort of overlap with the details of our lives. So I guess that's what the humor comes from. Well, um, in this in this uh, essay, we, we get a, a, a look at your uh, participation in, in oh, a right. wedding, a, a, which is something, I mean, most men don't have no anticipation or even interest in weddings. Uh, I mean, even your own is <laughs> wedding may, <laughs> may not uh, thrill you as, yeah. to the extent that it'll thrill the friends of the bride well it's like baby photos right you gotta select you know a tops 10 send those out and then just drop it (laughs) (laughs) so uh talk about um creating you know what happened to you and creating this in in an essay what what led you to write about this in the first place well it's funny it's the same thing with the new book as the as the old book where i don't necessarily sit down and think what stories do i have um that are worth sharing because Mm -hmm. that's you know, it's sort of a blog or a diary entry or even a cocktail party really is is for. And I feel like you have to think about what is a larger theme and then see if you have the corresponding story to go with. And I mean, sometimes you've got an extraordinary, extraordinary story that, you know, and you'll you'll make it work no matter what. Um, but for the most part, it actually works in reverse. Um, and so you know, that that bridal essay that you're referring to that's actually that's in the in I was told there'd be cake. Um, I was just I think a little bit confused by how disproportionately I annoyed I was with this woman um, and why this was so infringing upon my life. The story of that essay is really that I was asked to be uh, a bridesmaid, which is not the worst thing in the world, but uh, we'll ruin part of the essay, a twist to it and say that unbeknownst to me, halfway through, I find out I'm the maid of honor and that I hadn't really spoken to her in about a decade um, beyond a birthday card here and there. So I was surprised to be asked at all. and so it was just sort of an expo- exploration of how women really relate to each other uh, now, you know, and why is it such an affront and, and, and where are the rules and what are the lines? Well, one of the things I thought that was, was very funny was how um, uh, complicated all this is and how much work is involved. I mean, if I'm going to go to a wedding, as much work as I'm going to do is maybe put on a suit. 
<laughs> right. Well, that's yeah. That's that's. I mean, you guys also have that that great short hair um, <laughs> that you walk around having. <laughs> Such a nice thing. Um, we have, you know, and there's actually it's funny. There's there's that wedding, and almost as a, a counterbalance to it. In in how did you get this number? I go to a wedding in Alaska for a very dear friend who I loved and I are still love. And it's funny how I was had to do much more in a way for that, but didn't mind it. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing is that. The, the role play that women are forced to, you know, the, the, the various accessories we need all the time um, in terms of human accessories. You know, here's, here's, here's your boyfriend, here are your best friends, here are your girlfriends that media is telling you to, you know, have. And I think that this woman, not the more recent one I went to Alaska for, but the previous one you're referring to had fallen so thoroughly into that trap that growing up she was an incredibly independent spirit. She was so funky and so cool and such a theater kid kind of girl. Um, and then all of a sudden she got married and thought, well, I need five bridesmaids. And you guys don't think like that. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> uh, one of the things that I, I, I like is that how you um, show us this a really complicated kind of series of social relationships. Really, I can... It makes sense that you're uh, an archaeologist, anthropologist, because uh, there's almost an anthropological uh, slant to you because you're not involved in it in in a, either an emotional or even necessarily a, a girly manner. Right. You're, it, it's it's like a series of ever increasing chores with more and more rules. At, yeah, there's as, no and, pink script on the cover. <laughs> it's very adamant that I was told the big cake not be printed in icing. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's 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 and that's I think what saves you from a, a pitfall or that I think a lot of young SAS or a lo- young writers have. I mean, there's that whole. Uh, you know, idea that if you're in an MFA class or an intro to writing class, people are writing fiction. They're really writing about themselves. You know, they write a story about a, you know, girl who uh, or a guy who goes on a bad date, and then the guy, when they're analyzing it, you know, afterwards, forgets to say Jim and starts saying, "Well, when I did this," <laughs> you know, and that's sort of the weirdly common thing that a lot of young essayists have because I feel like they. Uh, or when you're writing in the first person, that danger to just be total navel-gazing, to think that the fact that you're there is story enough. Um, but really, you do need to observe something larger. You need step to separate yourself from a situation while still being involved in it, which is, I think, a feeling that everyone has. I mean, it's that feeling when you're at a party and you feel a little bit of removed, but you're still at the party, you know? <laughs> And that goes to the the theme of this of this book of of disappointment of that gap, and you observe across that gap quite well. Thank you. Uh, one of the things I think that's just wonderful about both these books is your your language and you know your sense of phrase, your ability to complete a paragraph, and your ability to come out with a with a knockout line about every three or four paragraphs that you just have to stop and read out loud to somebody. Um, those do those just roll off the tip of your word processor? <laughs> word processor is right because I just I'm such a luddite. I don't even have the internet at home. <laughs> um, you know they do and they do. I mean I think it's funny. I think the trick is to actually rein them in, and I'm not implying that they're uh, uh, necessarily brilliant in and of themselves, but the simply the the compulsion to make a joke to it. And things on, you know, it's radio, so you can't see, but I'm making sort of a, a string pulled through gesture with my hand, you know, to tie things up very neatly with a sort of zinger. Um, I actually have to fight that compulsion um, because otherwise it's sort of stand-up written. You know, you have to stop doing that. I think for the first book, I um, 
I mean, I think that the second one is just a darker humor because I let it breathe a little bit more. Um, but the first one, I fell into narrative nonfiction by accidents, accident. So I felt I had to, I was like, well, why am I here then if not to make jokes and not to be the dancing monkey with the symbols? So now it's a little, I, I've let go of that a little bit. Let's get back to my conversation with Sloan Crosley. Sloan, um, in your new uh, collection, uh, which is... How did you get this number? <laughs> uh, you have a, a, a wonderful um, uh, beginning here where you have decided to travel to Portugal. What? Explain how this happened and how you ended up in Lisbon with an offer to see circus clowns at three in the morning. You know, the usual ways that that happens. Um, I had... Um you know, just before I turned 30, I had always sworn to myself, you know, when I was a little kid, and I think there's some great Joan Didion quote that I'm about to botch about staying true to your former self. And uh, I think she meant uh, just sort of, you know, when you were 22, but I, I decided to interpret that as nine years old, you know, and still do on a daily basis. I like to, you know, if I'm in a hotel room, I'll jump up on the bed for a while. You know, it's kind of fun and eat dessert first and that sort of thing. But anyway, so I decided to um, spin a globe, which is what I had always wanted to do, and point and go to wherever I pointed. And I, I made myself some sort of adult rules to go along with this, such as no war zones. Um, I was single at the time, so I thought no places that are going to sort of, you know, depress me because they're so uh, wildly romantic. And uh, no places that would deplete my entire life savings. So, you know, the the practically inaccessible island off the coast of Osaka was not in the cards. So I thought, well, that should leave enough. I spun it and I smacked my finger right in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. <laughs> I thought, well, no one's looking. I'll just do it again. <laughs> so I did it again and I hit Portugal. And I thought, okay, here we go. And I went for about a week and I went in December. Now, now Lisbon is not... Um, well, not the most popular city in Europe. It is certainly not the most unpopular city. But in December uh, is the thing. Uh, and there was, I heard no one, I was the loneliest, only citizen, only uh, tourist among all the citizens in Lisbon. And so it was a very sort of strange, bizarre time. And I eventually uh, befriended a band of Portuguese mimes who were really bad at their job because they spoke. Um, but they <laughs> spoke Portuguese. So we ended up communicating through some paper scribblings, and I won't ruin the essay for you, but um, yeah, they ended up befriending me. One of the things you experience in Lisbon is what you call QVC porn. I, I, this is, I, tell us about as much of this as you can on, on National Public Radio. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, well, I won't reenact it for you. That should cut down on the on the salaciousness. Um, <laughs> basically, you know, I would the time difference was working in my favor, but uh, my social life was not. You know, because I didn't want to go out and get completely hammered. Frankly, in the middle of what turned out to be a pretty serious party city. Um, you know, it's not like a visa, but it's up there. And then, you know, be totally by myself and really realize that there was no one around. And so, 
you know, I would sometimes would stay up late and I try to have, you know, a glass of wine at a bar, but I would just bite biting my time till bedtime, really. So I'd watch TV. And the only thing that came in, bizarrely, on my little black and white TV in my, you know, bad hotel room was QVC stations that were obviously meant to sell you practical products, but they did so with a lot of topless women and half-naked men, and they just did things that no one should ever do with a carrot peeler. And I just was transfixed watching it. And so my line in the essay is that, you know, half the stations are QVC and half of them are sort of softcore porn. And then, you know, if there's a margin or a Venn diagram overlap, they're both. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I think that comes out in both of your books is, you know, your origins in suburbia. And I think suburbia is something that's not been written about very well, but I think you do capture suburbia very well. There's a, a wonderful uh, screed. I think it's in uh, maybe Bastard Out of Westchester where you talk about your, your origins in suburbia. And you now live in the big city. So there's <laughs> – well, in New York, that's a big city compared to here, Santa Cruz. And I, I've actually never gotten out of suburbia, and I don't intend to, to be quite honest. <laughs> so tell us about the gap between your upbringing in you know, sterile suburbia and, and your life now. You know, it's, it's funny. It's, I think I was talking to someone the other day about – you know, it's a weirdly a similar question to the sort of speaking for women question um, – where someone was asking about, you know, what's important to our generation? How would I characterize our generation now? And I think being 30 years old, um, the idea is that we, we're just getting used to the fact that we have a generation, that you can point to someone who's 24 or 25 and say, that's different. And the same thing is sort of true of suburbia, where it just felt like what was normal, and then you move out and you think... You realize how small certain things were. You realize why you were frustrated, and you kind of wish you knew them when you were, <laughs> when you were in it. Um, and it's just, it's it's really hard. I mean, there they, fictionally, there's been you know, I mean, Revolutionary Road. There's been tons of portrayals, you know, John Cheever of of suburbia, but it's really hard to capture it because I think the general consensus among the writing community and among the human community is that it's not worth necessarily capturing in literature because it feels like a place in between. Small town, definitely write about it. Big city, definitely write about it. But suburbia, it's like, well, here's my house that looks like my neighbor's house and here's the mall that we all go to and here's, you know, the, and it's, it's hard to figure out how to capture it and how to capture the sort of culture and the Lord of the Flies kind of microcosm of it. Uh, well, because it's so, it's so, it doesn't have borders the way a small town or the way uh, the poetry of a small town or the way a big city has. Well, one of the things I think that that's um, interesting is that uh, I, I, you have this line in 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 uh, there about um, you say sometimes we can't know what we want until we don't get it. And I think that this is a, a really um, telling vision of uh, the um, that kind of ennui, the angst, that that tension that we all feel, as you say, between the uh, between life in a, in a city in a large urban environment and life in in a very small town. I think yeah, that's the thing is that um, you know. 
when you're overwhelmed with decisions and then you're overwhelmed with possibilities and it's it's a it's a fortunate situation you know it's a so you feel bad even complaining about it <laughs> you know i have food and shelter and that's good so let's move on from there but um i think sometimes you didn't really realize what you wanted until you think well i don't have enough of something and i don't mean uh you know actual you know money or financially or anything like that but just oh well i haven't lived in enough places or i don't have enough of this kind of people in my life or i haven't done a certain kind of thing um or when you you operate in the negative sometimes you're annoyed i mean it, sometimes it operates on a less sort of grand more daily basis i mean i'll be walking along in new york and if it starts to pour i think would i pay to not be walking in the rain well, then you take a taxi. <laughs> you operate not so much what I pay for the taxi, but what would I pay to not be doing? <laughs> and so I think sometimes we we think like that more uh, than we give ourselves uh, credit for. When you mention taxis, you mentioned another subject. I think that you uh, that comes back uh, interestingly, and I think oddly in these books a, a few times. I've always we know that there's a spectrum of colors from the spectrum of the rainbow. <laughs> there's a musical scale from the top to the bottom. But there's not yet, at least, an equivalent for smell. For smell. <laughs> there's not a smell spectrum yet, though you uh, plun- you talk about the spectrum of smell. Oh, you that- mean in terms of how pungent the yeah. something can get? I think... Uh, you do not eat enough cheese. <laughs> I think that might be. <laughs> Things can get pretty hairy. <laughs> uh, you have a great description of cheese in Paris, I think it is. In Paris. There's a lot, you know, there's a lot. This actually, yeah, I think the second book is a a festival for the olfactorily inclined. Um, there's a lot of description of scents. Um, you, you can't have one without uh, living in the city. But also, you know, Beyond New York in general, I mean, for anybody, everyone knows that, you know, smell is the strongest memory trigger. You know, smell is a great way to describe something. It's also challenging in writing. It's a lot easier to um, trigger people's sort of visual hook into an essay or a story than it is to trigger their, you know, you you don't smell an essay. You visualize one, I should hope. Well, I'm glad that your story of the New York taxis is not as in a scratch and sniff mode because. Oh. <laughs> no, I mean, what would let's see, what would my book smell like? I guess the first one would smell like you know rotten wedding cake, and then this one would smell <laughs> like you know, God, bear feces. That's not very selling. Now, no one's going to buy it. <laughs> or the back of a New York taxi. Or the back of a cab. Yes. Or yeah, exactly. Or like you know, little you know, pops. Icicle pops. Yeah, icicle pops. Uh, one, uh, there's a character in in this book, in both these books, who's not you, and that is New York. Oh. Talk talk about your relationship with this city. Uh, you you have an an interesting uh, vision of New York that I think is uh, I think really unique, because you neither adore it nor find it completely insane but you manage to embrace it in in a manner that i think is as i say uh uniquely is from sloan crosley well thank you i mean i think that um you know the thing about new york is people go and they visit and they visit a certain you know sector of it and i think if i were to um you know inner space style be in their body and view the world through their eyes I wouldn't want to live there either <laughs> um, 
because it's you know you have you make your own city out of it. I mean, I, you, I remember when I was applying to colleges, I ended up going to a very small school because I envisioned, let's say, Michigan. You know, it's forty thousand people, and I have this vision of myself walking along the path, and you know, thirty nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine people walking in the other direction. And I just said no, thank you. Um, and similarly, I think people's impressions of New York are the same way. And in fact, it is some mix between, you know the great things that have always been true about it that are so wonderful and so unique to it and the things that you make your own that you would find in anywhere that you would find in Santa Cruz that it doesn't matter you know you find your group of friends you find the things you know you find the things that are true of that place and that place alone well you also have a, a penchant um for uh i you you uh, have occasionally misplaced things shall we say your wallet your keys and, and I, as a you know when you're writing these things there's you know millions of people reading them how do you feel about you know showing people your you know less than uh comp- competent moments millions of people potentially finding my wallet which i'm sure i will lose before this book tour is over <laughs> it's like the golden ticket if you can find it <laughs> um you know i think you have to that kind of stuff doesn't feel very risky to me. It really doesn't. I mean, the stuff about, you know, being lost all the time. Here's my crazy learning disability. Here's my, you know. Oh, I suffer I from that too. Thing. The, you know, I can't, yeah, I don't know which way's up, that kind of thing. It's, it's A lot of people suffer from that stuff. And so that's not really saying I have this rare thing, but, you know, plugging into what other people already know, leveling with people. What's dangerous is the bigger stuff, is the, you know, I had my heart broken. I secretly think this. I am a bad volunteer at a museum. I am a bad friend in this respect. That's that's the stuff that's risky. I mean, I don't think people are judging me because I lock myself out of my apartment a lot. I think it's, you know, that sort of spacey endearment as opposed to, you know, that stuff is for humor and there's other stuff in these books that's for risk. And, and you talked about uh, your um, volunteering. And I thought that was a really interesting essay. And I think one that was uh, unique almost in both books uh because uh you you started out volunteering um for for the butterfly exhibit at the museum of natural natural history but um you didn't find it as an, as an entertaining and in in Grossing, I guess, as you, as you expected, did you? Well, I don't think that you volunteer to be entertained. I mean, that's, you know, that would be kind of hilarious if you, you know, taught little kids to read and they just weren't telling you enough jokes and you thought, well, <laughs> why am I here? <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't think that's why you do that. Um, but I really had this, like, you know, sort of wave of do-gooderism that I wanted to enact somehow. And then, you know, I reasoned with myself. I knew myself well enough. A, I have a full-time job. I mean, and then B, I thought, well, I'm, I'm really not going to stick with it if I have to go someplace that's super far away from my house or a soup kitchen. I just knew I wouldn't do it. Um, and so I thought, well, I'll volunteer helping kids, you know, and, and teaching them and volunteer at the, at the museum. Uh, that's perfect. And I also spoke to my sort of archaeological, anthropological roots of interest. Um, and I just was really bad at it. And you, you might ask yourself how you can be bad at dealing with butterflies. They don't really impose on you too much. But, you know, little kids would ask me, you know, where do the butterflies go when they die? And I felt I was wholly unqualified to explain to them what their parents had not 
explain to them and talk to them about butterfly souls. Um, and then I accidentally kidnapped one, a rare uh, South American butterfly stuck to my lapel and didn't make it through the sort of mirrored chamber that you check yourself for. Um, and I, it, the story is about me trying to return the butterfly to the museum unsuccessfully. There's, there's just this wonderful moment of kind of, I think, uh, 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 it's a, what I would call a nervous moment of grace that, that ends that. And, and uh, I, when do you write these things? I mean, how, what, what possesses you in between a, a full-time job to sit down and write about what you've been doing? Ritalin? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> what? No, that's not true. Um, you know, I think uh, I've always wanted to write something I've, I've always wanted to do. And uh, the reason I eventually didn't go the whole archaeology route is because I couldn't push this to the side because I loved it too much. Um, I really do love it. I mean, and I love the challenges of it. I mean, I like the idea. I think the, the real humor of the essays is something very simple. It's not that secret, which is simply... How do you take something that is uh, patently unfunny, uh, seeing a bear get killed, being lost, getting your heart broken, being part of a wedding you don't want to be a part of, you know, something that's quite frankly a little bit sad, and and make it funny and make people feel guilty for laughing at it. That is my favorite kind of humor. Um, and so that is something I enjoy. Beyond that, I don't know what possesses anyone to write. We'll get back to my conversation with humorist Sloane Crosley in just a moment. return to my conversation with Sloane Crosley. Her new book is How Did You Get This Number? Sloane, one of the things that I really loved about this um, essay about the, the grizzly bear um, was that you're, you just offer us such an entertaining vision of somebody who subsequently became on, you know, a, a complete, like, news cannot avoid her uh, personality. So talk about that. When you were writing about it, you just throw a couple lines in about the, the governor of Alaska. Oh, that part. <laughs> you know, I was I was hesitant to actually throw in any kind of current events. I mean, I think that, um, you know, there, there, there are certain touches that I never, it, you have to be so careful with them. I mean, in the last book, there's a 9-11 reference that um, the essay kind of builds up to. And especially, I mean, for something like that, in a humor essay, you have to be very careful about why and how you use it and how long something like that will last. But the time I read that, it was more historic. The Sarah Palin thing that you're referring to, uh, which is a bit of a riff. Um, I went to Alaska just after Ted Stevens was ousted uh, from his post as governor for accepting illegal campaign donations um, and before anyone knew who Sarah Palin was. I mean, in the essay, I mentioned it's it's funny. Politicians are very much like Olympians. You know, they've been training. They're there the whole time. And then every four years, they just sprout up. Um, but, you know, we didn't really know. And uh, the mother of the bride at one point was talking, and she said uh, that there were rumors around Alaska that uh, their governor might be tapped for the Republican vice presidential ticket. And she called her our Sarah Palin. And I don't know. I was just trying to be supportive of my friend's mom. I was like, good for you. That sounds great. A lady governor. Wonderful. <laughs> Let's do it. Um, and we knew nothing at the time. 
about how much of a um, kind of disaster that was going to be. Talk a little bit about what happened when you were on the road in Alaska. That that's a, a it's a really powerful uh, piece of writing because there there is humor, but it's also uh, I think fairly intense. And, and um, how long? occurred between the time you started writing it this happened and the time you were able to write about it um about six or seven months i mean i think you know i don't walk around thinking what would make a perfect essay at all uh otherwise i don't think i'd be able to live my life and more importantly i don't think the people in my life would be able to live with me (laughs) um but i um i don't know the exact time i started writing about it but it, it's a sort of something traumatic happens on this. I don't know if I should ruin it, but something happens uh, on the road and it's an encounter with a bear. Um, and it sort of brings all of my uh, experiences with Alaska to one to one giant head. And it was just a really uh, a very vivid experience and therefore easier to remember, I think. Now, um, do do all these start out as essays? All of these pieces, do they, I mean, do you sit down, uh, do each of these begin with a real deliberate uh, attempt to, to craft an essay? No, they all come from somewhere different. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's sort of like, you know, like children. Some of them are, some of them are love children and, and some of them are on purpose. <laughs> but, you know, sometimes you have too many glasses of wine and you pick up the keyboard. No, um, <laughs> but they, they, um. They all start from a different spot. A lot of times I imagine the endings first, which is sort of a strange tick because most people are better at beginnings. But when I sit down to write them, um, you know, I do have a structure in mind, especially with these ones. These ones are much, and how did you get this number? They're much longer than they were. And I was told there'd be cake, and so they needed to be sort of reined in and, you know, controlled a little bit. I, I totally didn't answer your question, did I? I forgot what the question was. That's okay. Sorry. Now we have just a couple minutes okay. left, but I want you to talk about, about the HBO pilot you've got going. Yes, well, HBO Option, my first book, uh, I was told there'd be cake for series, um, and I'm actually writing the pilot. So uh, it's been a very interesting experience, basically joining these essays into uh, what would be a pilot. I mean, I don't know if it'll ever get made, Um but, you know, because it came out naturally, obviously, as essays, not as poetry or song or, or ukulele music or, or, you know, a screenplay. So uh, it's been interesting formatting it. But I love writing dialogue. It's some of my favorite stuff to write in these essays. So it's been really fun. Well, I must feel kind of odd for you to write, to cast yourself. Are, are you going to be in the, in the series? Are you going to narrate it? Or how's that going to work? some version of me, just like the essays, some version of me. <laughs> I've been speaking with Sloane Crosley. Her first book was I Told There Be Cake, and her new book is How Did You Get This Number? Thank you for joining me, Sloane. Thank you so much.
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.